In the realm of true crime, every crime scene tells a story. Every story has its truths. These are the stories from inside the crime scene tape that separates fact from fiction. goes inside the yellow crime scene tape. Hello, I'm Robert Riggs. If you watch the Netflix series Narcos Mexico, you know the story of how real-life DEA agent Enrique Kiki Camarena was abducted, tortured, and murdered by cartel kingpins in Guadalajara in 1985. I'm here with a similar story that you have probably never heard about. In 2011, Mexican drug traffickers ambushed two Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents, ICE. Special Agent Victor Avila was severely wounded. His partner, Jaime Zapata, was killed. In the aftermath of the tragedy, an investigation by the U.S. Office of Special Counsel confirmed Avila's allegations that ICE officials had failed to properly train and support the agents for such dangerous missions. His book titled Agent Under Fire, A Murder and a Manifesto is dedicated to finding justice for his murdered partner. Now here's Victor Avila. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, uh, glad to, to be here and to share the story. Uh, I grew up born and raised in El Paso, Texas. And, you know, I wasn't, I can't say I was one of those kids that wanted to be a police officer from a young age. I did have an inclination once I became a teenager uh, I became an El Paso police explorer, which is tied to the to the Boy Scout. Yes, and um, and served along with uh, the police officers and got firsthand uh, to not only be amongst the police officers and see them as humans. Uh, I was I was you know raised to respect authority and somewhat uh, that respect also was a, a a a healthy fear of the of of the police. You know, every time a, a police would pull up next to you, you kind of tighten up and make sure everything's okay in your vehicle. Uh, and so uh, what it helped me is to, to see the human side of the police officers by uh, seeing the inside of the offices, the patrolling with them, working the parades. And it really um, uh, opened a different side of the law enforcement. I just saw them as, as normal people and that had lives and, and like to barbecue just like my dad did as well. And, uh, and so that kind of st- started the the progression. El Paso is unique and there's a lot of heavy presence of law enforcement, especially a federal law enforcement there from Border Patrol, U.S. Customs and and um, going into college for a criminal justice degree. My uh, my goal was to become a, a U.S. Customs Special Agent. I had seen uh, the and worked with the inspectors uh, at the, this is prior, prior Department of Homeland Security. This is uh, prior 9-11, obviously. And um, really uh, was in awe of the uh, special agents, the criminal investigators that came in response to a seizure at the port of entry. And when I saw them, I said, who are these guys? You know, they're in civilian clothes. Well, they're like, they're our detectives. They're the ones that actually investigate all the crimes that, you know, happened along the border. I didn't know that. And ni- that was 1994, that, that 10 years later, I was going to become one of those after going through a different path in my career, becoming a state parole officer for the state of Texas, that um, really, as a 23-year-old getting embedded into the criminal world 
and and dealing with individuals that have been in in prison, gang members, sex offenders, uh, violent offenders. I supervised them and uh, was a, a surveillance officer to keep our community safe and only had certain areas where they were allowed to go. And I was uh, assigned to keep them from going to different locations. But nevertheless, it exposed me to the criminal underworld. You know, a lot of people think, well, individuals go to prison and they stay there forever. And that's just not the case. Almost everyone at one point will come out. And uh, and so my natural progression, I'm an ambitious person. I noticed that there was a, uh, the same position for me on the state at the federal level as a federal probation officer. And so I became a federal probation officer, did that for five years. The first season of True Crime Reporter is focused on a serial killer named Kenneth McDuff, who bribed his way out of prison. And it was at a time in 1988, 89, 90, early 90s, in which it was a revolving door system because of prison overcrowding. And so some members of the parole board, including the chairman, took advantage of, hey, we'll just start taking money. I'm kind of curious what you saw. Now, there were reforms put in place after that, but uh, one of the things that struck me is the board, and I don't think it even does to this day, they really have no method based on science or forensic psychiatry to assess, is this person a future danger to society? Are they a psychopath? Did you see, what did you see on that? My goodness, I saw a lot of of what the the parole board and a lot of the times the the lack of... um, I guess, uh, to put it lightly, the lack of uh, supervision, the lack of uh, uh, oversight of mm-hmm. that department. And like you said, a lot of people were released uh, erroneously by these boards. Um, and I remember also there was a new law that had passed in Texas, and this is in the early 90s, uh, a mandatory release because of the overcrowding uh, that no longer, it kind of cut the board out. Uh, and and rightly so in, in, certain, in certain ways that, uh, the board didn't have to make a decision anymore. It it became by law that this person had to be released earn, after a certain amount of yeah. serving the, the of their sentence. A very short time on the sentence. Yes, yeah. and most of the the individuals, if not a very very high percentage that I supervise, were on mandatory release and not technically parole. You know, we all called it parole, right. but technically it was not parole. It was a mandatory release by law. By that date, you had to be released by from prison. And there was a lot of bad people coming out of prison into our communities, some into halfway houses and then some straight out into the community. And so, uh, yes, these parole boards are something else. I, I, uh, I had a quite of a reputation as a young as a young parole officer. I just couldn't believe that some of these people were out in the street. And then uh, when I became a parole officer, my, my work ethic was to start looking at these cases. And a lot of these people were in violation. And so I was known and quickly got a reputation of revoking these individuals and putting them back in prison, right. which I was just doing my job. And, uh, and that's, and that's what happened. Uh, I would, I'd see the violations, I report them, get a warrant for them and put them right back. And, uh, and so um, I started, you know, I thought I was doing good for the community to do that because some of these individuals were, especially the sex offenders were just yes. incredibly dangerous. What was your sense when you see somebody who's got a record of violent crime? I'm not talking about drug dealers or car thieves. I'm talking about the ones that are using guns in crime, assaulting people. There's a record of violence with it. Did you did you ever see any evidence that you could really turn them back out again or rehabilitate them? Absolutely not. The recidivism rate was incredible. And I had these, um, a lot of them were gang affiliated and they would tell me, I would have these in, in, incredible conversations with them, candid conversations. And these criminals would tell me, listen, Victor, uh, uh, or they would call me Mr. Avila. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm holding back from committing a crime while I'm out here. My nature is to commit a crime, is to commit a robbery. When you let me go to the, to the grocery store, I have to hold back and not taking the older lady's purse or carjacking somebody. This is a person that I supervise telling me this. This is their world. This is their life. Them going to prison is part of their, their, their cycle. In my family, if someone goes to prison, it's a tragedy. It's a horrific event. But for them, I would go and announce to the family members, by the way, your son is going to go back for another two or three years. Oh, okay. I guess he's not going to be here for this Christmas or this Thanksgiving. And very nonchalant, take that kind of uh, uh, that news. But it's that's the world they live in, the crime world, that it's part of crime, prison, 
paying for the crime and coming out and redoing it again. It's, it's how they live. And once you advanced, advanced in your career to ICE, I'm guessing you started to see that world, because I saw it in the prison system, becoming more hardened, more violent, more vicious, especially with the cartels. Absolutely. And, uh, and of course, we'll talk about my experience. But um, because I was a, a gang intelligence officer, uh, I had a, a really good understanding of the prison gangs, the street gangs that, that fed a lot of them into the prison system, and then the ones that crossed the border into Mexico. And uh, a lot of the, the gangs that work with the cartels as enforcers, as these drug pushers. And so I'm very, very well aware of the, uh, the criminal element and the level of violence. We saw this increase in the mid to late 90s where there was a big shift where the cartels all of a sudden would shoot up locations, restaurants, clubs, something that you would never see before to get people's attention or, you know, to get their word across of, you know, what I talk about in the book as, as terrorists that they are now. And I think they've been like that for a long time. But absolutely, there has been a shift and even more so in just in the last 10 to 15 years, the the blatant, uh, 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 the, the cartels really uh, disregard f- and for any kind of authority. They're not afraid of anyone. Well, and we see the cases where they just butcher people. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's horrific videos just that I, I receive. I have sources that I get some these videos mm-hmm. from and just... A week and a half ago, sometimes I, mm-hmm. I, I tell my friends and, and, and contacts that I have, man, these videos, I, I can't even watch them anymore. They are extremely violent. They are decapitating people. They are, and I'll describe them here so people could understand what I see. They, uh, they're pulling hearts out of people's heart uh, chest and they're still beating in their hand while they're, they're dismembering their body while these people are alive. This is happening just right on the other side of Texas. And, uh, you know, playing soccer with heads, uh, human heads. It is, it is incredible. It's barbaric. It's evil. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, I, I, I don't know what worse word to use to describe them. Well, and then as a reporter covering the terrorism in, in Iraq, the war and all, I saw ISIS and uh, certainly Al-Qaeda doing the same thing and these other groups. And we went halfway around the world to do something about it, but we don't seem to do much about it right in our own neighborhood. I talk about it all the time, that, that this issue with the cartels and these terrorist organizations that I think should be deemed or designated as such uh, are not 6,000 miles away, like you say. They're right next door, and yet we don't seem to do or care to do anything about it. So take us to um, the subject of the book and your career, how does your career take you to the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City and then eventually into this ambush? It, it, it started in, um, in 2008. I was in El Paso. I had done a, a, a great investigation, took close to a year of a corrupt Border Patrol agent. That case was brought to me and was presented to me and said, Victor, you want to do this case? I said, yes. It was a, a, a corrupt Border Patrol agent. Usually the Office of Inspector General is the one that, that handles those cases, but they were uh, understaffed and undermanned that I was able to bring that case to justice, discovered who the corrupt Border Patrol agent was, took down the organization in Mexico. And, um, and so that got me a little bit of a cloud in my office to get to choose what I wanted to do. I wanted to do financial investigations when I got into that, you know, the Bank Secrecy Act, money laundering investigations, which I did. The old adage of follow oh, the money. That's right. That's right. That's where you actually then get to make a difference. And then, uh, you know, your career sometimes just, there's career paths that there was an opening at the at the U.S. consulate in Ciudad Juarez on the other side of El Paso, Texas. We had two ICE agents serving there. They needed help, and it was a temporary duty assignment. I, I was selected to, to go over there, and off of that selection came the permanent assignment to Mexico City. You know, uh, once I was working there, I got to go to Mexico City working on an arms trafficking case, and then, um, it, it, you know, the stars align sometimes mm-hmm. in your career. Positions open up. And I was offered a position to become a permanent ICE rep at the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City. So when you cross the border in another country, what is your role? What are you doing? And are you armed? The role, uh, it's, uh, it's completely different. Now, all of a sudden, now you're a U.S. diplomat. I was a, a fully accredited diplomat with a black passport. Uh, you're a representative of the government. And you're, you're still a special agent. However, you have, have absolutely no authority. In that, in that country, other than a liaison mm-hmm. uh, to that country, in this case, Mexico, because I've worked in Europe as well. 
and you're an advisor, you're a liaison. We have a we have a very clear and set mission with that government, in this case, Mexico, to help them in the war against the the narco trafficking, the human trafficking, the human smuggling, many other issues uh, across the border. At that time, there had been over 300 women missing in Ciudad Juarez. And so we had, you know, very involved with that as well. Mass graves, you name it, uh, yes. a lot of crime. And so uh, we're there in a very supportive role and also enhancing the investigations from stateside where uh, agents from throughout the U.S. have a case that stumbles into Mexico and then we supplement and help them uh, with those cases. Many uh, looking for fugitives, looking for witnesses. It's something that I did a lot as well in Mexico. And um, and so and also my my main focus when I was in Mexico City was human trafficking. I was head of the Global Trafficking in Persons Initiative which my uh, my whole uh, uh, purpose there is to identify human trafficking organizations, and uh, which I did, and find organizations that were taking women and children and trafficking them from Mexico into the U.S. And I was very successful in dismantling a lot of these groups, rescued many women and children from these horrific captive, uh, captivity uh, situations um, in New York, Atlanta, Miami, Houston. And so um, uh, a lot of that, a lot of that coordination with the government, but always with with the government of Mexico under their authority. And right. So you don't have the authority of the U.S. government and the legal system here. And as a reporter working this side of the border, I mean, I, I always just felt there was just systemic political corruption in Mexico. How did you get anything done and who, how did you ever figure out, can I trust this person? It's a great question because we dealt with that on a daily basis, on an hourly basis in Mexico. Uh, and I'll put it to you this way. Two individuals that I work very closely in Mexico uh, are in custody right now. One is in custody in the United States for being uh, working for the Sinaloa cartel. The other one is uh, the one that showed up to the hospital after I was shot. The number two of the federal police had been a fugitive. He was just caught last week in Mexico for torture, corporate uh, uh, money, money laundering and drug trafficking charges and corruption charges. Like you said, these are the individuals that we had to work with. We knew they were corrupt. We just didn't know the level of corruption, but it's something that you had to navigate on a daily basis, especially the information that you put out. Now with me, I approached it very simply. I was honest, still very proud of my integrity. And I, I approached the, the government of Mexico and say, listen, here's the case. This is the information. If you want to go and rescue these kids and these children and take down these bad guys, that's up to you. Here, let's go. Let's do it. In my office, they really wanted us to, to be participants in this, which is kind of goes into what happened with this assignment. They really wanted us to be present at these takedowns mm -hmm. in law enforcement activity. And I was very involved in a lot of these in Mexico, which uh, sometimes I think I was more involved in Mexico than I was on stateside when it came to arrest warrants, search warrants. Um, but that's maybe uh, another another podcast that we could talk about. But um, but nevertheless, I was successful. Uh, I don't know if it was my honesty. I don't know what it was that I was able to establish a great working relationship with the government of Mexico, their human trafficking units, their prosecuting uh, prosecution units. And we're able to work closely, nevertheless, never undermining the corruption as well. We're going to pause for a moment for a break. I'll be back after this break. Hello, this is Robert, and I want to ask a small favor. Will you please tell your friends who love true crime to follow the True Crime Reporter podcast? As you know, it's one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement experts, victims, and even convicted criminals. And please sign up for my free newsletter. The form is on every page of my website. Finally, I am so thankful to my Apple listeners who have given the podcast five-star reviews. Your reviews on all of the channels are extremely helpful in spreading the word about this podcast. Now, back to our episode. Before we return to our interview, please recommend True Crime Reporter to a friend and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can join our true crime community at the link to our website in the show notes. 
Now back to our interview. Okay, we're back uh, from the break, and you were talking about being present at takedowns. Is this where you end up getting ambushed because you are present? And are you are, are you and your partner armed? Do you have any protection? This ambush actually has nothing to do with uh, with any law enforcement action in Mexico. This is a um, a botched assignment by my superiors, uh, ICE in Mexico City. They had given me an assignment on February 14th on Valentine's Day 2011 to go pick up some equipment from our ICE agents, our ICE counterparts from the Monterey Consulate Office on the fly. You know, I had just I had just stepped into the office from another trip that I had come back from another investigation, wasn't aware. I wasn't briefed. There was no operational plan. Um, as you can imagine, in Mexico, everything was very uh, methodical and and well planned in this case that wasn't granted to me. Uh, they gave me the assignment. They said, you're going to take the TDY wire referred to Special Agent Jaime Zapata, who had just arrived in Mexico a little over a week. And they said, you're going to take him with you to help you drive. And um, I had never met Special uh, Agent Zapata, who had just arrived from Laredo office on a arms trafficking case. He was there supplementing agents that were coming in on a rotating basis to help out with this huge investigation because our office was overwhelmed at that time. The ICE office was the busiest office in the world. And um, you name the case, we were working at money laundering, drug trafficking, yes. human trafficking, human smuggling. And this is the two of you alone? This is the two of us alone. No backup, no reinforcement. Every time we drove on that Highway 57, I was very familiar with that highway. I had driven it many, many times. And that runs from where to where? From Mexico City straight up to Texas. In this case, through Monterey. But you know, none of the uh, the things that uh, the enforcement that were always afforded to us, either through Mexican military backup, Mexican police, or even other U.S. agents, that wasn't afforded to me. There wasn't enough time. They said, you go tomorrow. We want that uh, equipment by close of business day. And you go in. Even though I challenged it, there was an alert by the ambassador uh, saying um, not allowing anyone to drive on Highway 57. It's clearly, I have a copy of it, says you are prohibited from driving on Highway 57 for personal reasons or business reasons. And if in fact you do have to go on that road, you have to get special permission from the ambassador or the re, uh, uh, regional security office, which my office did not and ignored that alert. Why did they ignore the, the alert? The alert was the Zetas control that corridor. We knew that. I mean, that's what we do in the country. We We follow the intelligence. We, know, we knew about the intelligence, but my superiors ignored the intelligence. As a matter of fact, I quote the deputy attache in the book, and I'll continue to quote him until, I'm a, until I can't. And he says, when, when I questioned him, he said that he wasn't aware of any, any security issues in Mexico. And when your boss says that to you, the whole country of Mexico is a security issue. And so when you hear your boss tell you those words right back at you, it, you know, it's either incompetence or they're doing this purposefully, right? So it is, uh, that's, that's, those are the people that I was dealing with in Mexico. Tell our listeners about the Zetas, about, as I recall, now you got to correct me if I'm wrong, they were even trained by the U.S. and armed by the U.S. and they, then they go to the dark side? The, the Zetas originally um, came originally and trained from the, with Guatemalan forces. That's where the, the first origins came from, from Guatemala. And yes, you're correct. And um, a lot of them were trained by U.S. Uh, military. And they uh, started off as enforcers for the Sinaloa cartel. They were the, um, the muscle for them. But at first, they're supposed to be the good guys. Well, they, uh, at first, they're, they're, they're military guys. They right. work for the government. And right. then, of course, they faction off into their own gang uh, initially and started working with the Gulf cartel and became the enforcers for the Sinaloa cartel. And once they started getting the numbers, their call to action was, was the violence that they brought. They were just known for the level of violence, uh, the beheadings, the, the, the different uh, aspects of violence that they brought that separated them from the other cartels that the other cartels would not do. You know, the other cartels might shoot people up, but these guys went above and beyond that. And so they, they got a name for themselves and they faction off and created their own cartel, the Zetas cartel. I mean, there's, there's a case where they wiped out and killed uh, 72 migrants that had come in from mostly from Central America. There was one survivor. Uh, they, had, they went into another town because of in information that they had received from a, a source of, one, of a, a person, a snitch from that town, possibly gave out some really good information to one of the Zetas. But in, the Zetas, instead of going in there and investigating who that source was, 
they went and killed over 300 people, basically wiped out the town. That's how these guys function. And they're still there. Uh, now they've, they were basically somewhat, somewhat dismantled because of our case. The hierarchy was taken once the, the attack and we, you know, we took eight of them into custody. And so there, there was uh, some dismantling of the organization. So they faction off into what we call now, they're called CDN, Cartel del Noreste or Cartel of the Northeast. But they're still there. They're still very present and still in the war with the Gulf, Gulf Cartel in Southern Texas area. Let's go back to the day of the ambush. Did the Zetas know you were coming or they just control the highway and just taking on anybody who came down it? I think both. I, I, I firmly believe both. They controlled the highway and I think they knew that we were on that highway. When um, this was a total ambush and, and a highly sophisticated uh, uh, execution of this ambush, they, they you know, I, I, um, when, we were, uh, when we were pulled over to the shoulder, uh, they, they, they executed a, what we call a rolling roadblock uh, as Jaime drove, pushed us to the right side of the shoulder. And when they surrounded the, the, the suburban in front of us, we had our hands up and I screamed and yelled at them that we were Americans, that we were U.S. embassy employees, that we were U.S. diplomats. The, the vehicle is a diplomatic vehicle. And this whole time, I didn't know if in fact they had heard me. But you fast forward to 2017, when we had the trial, they were extradited and brought to, to Washington, D.C. They testified that in fact, they did hear me that they knew we were Americans and they still decided to open fire. So they had the opportunity to say, uh-oh, these guys are Americans, which many times had happened before to DEA agents in Mexico, FBI agents, and even HSI agents that are held at gunpoint by organized criminals mm -hmm. and they find out they're American agents right. and then they just step back. Yeah, so the, the, the brazenness of it, certainly in the, after Kiki Camarena was murdered, you would have thought the the message was out to the cartels. Don't be doing this to the Americans because a lot of wrath is going to come down on us. Why do you think they did it? And, and that's the shift. That's the biggest shift from these cartels that they fear no one anymore. That that underlying rule, that uh, unwritten rule about the cartels are not going to mess with you because your U.S. law enforcement obviously uh, was disbanded that day. And, um, and unfortunately, you know, we did, we would talk about that all the time. Like they're not going to mess with us because they don't want the wrath right. of the U S law enforcement, but moving forward from that day, 2011, they, they don't care anymore. So is there a moment there you get that spidery feeling on your neck? Uh, like this is going to go, this is going to go bad. I'm it actually happened before the shooting, which is kind of a, I talk about it in the book because there was a, um, a Mexican federal police officer on the middle of Highway 57 in the median, scoping out traffic by himself. So just imagine you're driving on, on, on a freeway here in Texas and you see a trooper out with his M4 just looking at traffic, scanning them. You know, people were slowing down to see what, what this police officer was doing. We did the same. We slowed down, looked at him, he looked at us, and I became very, very scared. And as I tell you, I get chills down my body because I turned, I was still driving, I told Jaime, I told Jaime, uh, what the F is, you know, I might have a little bit of a sailor mouth, but I'm not going to use the words that I used them. But I said, what the F is he doing? I mean, this is very rare. I've been in Mexico many years. I've gone through a lot of checkpoints, illegal, legal, military, cartel, and I know how to navigate through them. And what he was doing there was very out of place. And I felt scared. And I told Jaime, are you okay? He says, I'm scared too. I said, yeah, I kept on looking at him as we drove by with the mirrors to see what was up with this guy. I don't know he was alerting the cartel that we were there. I don't know what it was purpose, but the feeling that you talk about came that day, that moment, not actually during the shooting. And uh, walk us through, do they in effect execute you, take you out of the car, walk, walk us through the event of what happens. They wanted and us. And does everybody, anyone ever say why they're doing it? No, no, they're there. They have evil in their eyes. And these guys, all they want is get us to get us out of the vehicle and they're yanking on the doors. They are unsuccessful in doing that. But in the moment that we um, try to lock the doors, uh, the when my window is rolled down, the armored window of my Suburban is rolled down about two inches, which we weren't aware of. Uh, this whole time, there's a lot of screaming and shouting. Uh, Hyman never said a word. I was uh, yelling and screaming at them in Spanish, uh, identifying myself. I, I told him, let me get my diplomatic passport from my backpack so I could show it to you. And they're like, 
effing get out of the car and get to open the you know the door da, da, da. and before you know it two of the shooters came to my window and introduced an ak-47 and a handgun right by my head and as soon as they did that i rolled the window and it caught the barrels of both guns and um you know i i braced myself uh up against the the post of the suburban you know and just so people understand the back of the suburban is full of boxes so there's no there's no way for us to run to the cab or to the cargo area of the suburban and uh, without notice they opened fire into the cabin and striking agent zapata multiple times on his torso lethally on his leg with the ak-47 round i get shot once in my chest and twice in my left leg i'm in the sitting in the front passenger seat there's no room to go i at one point even grabbed the gun from the handgun and wiggle wiggle the gun and burned my whole hand and eventually still had my finger on that button and when, as soon as they pulled those barrels out the window went up and they sprayed over 100 rounds uh at our armored vehicle on the right side i then uh, pulled the lever the the gear shift down and pressed Jaime's leg onto the gas pedal and crashed the the their suv that was blocking us to try to get out of the x try to get out of the and get back on highway 57 but uh agent zapata became unresponsive and the vehicle just rolled into the median and then i try to get the suburban back on the highway and people will see the pictures online and in the book i have some pictures on there where they just they destroyed that vehicle it was just i mean the tires were shot out you know, they, they say that they wanted to carjack us and wanted the vehicle. It didn't make any sense. They destroyed the, that car. And so they left. And the second vehicle that leaves the, of the shooters does a U-turn and comes back and parks right in front of the Suburban. Two of the shooters come out and they face me and they come out with two AK-47s right in front of the hood and they start shooting through the window. And I just freeze at that point. And the, you know, the ballistic window is stopping the rounds from coming in. There's these, um, uh, so people can understand armored windows and they'll eventually give way. Right. And they were trying to shoot. And, and there's pictures where you'll see the two marks of the two shots where they're trying to, you know, penetrate yeah. it. But then they, uh, they run back into their SUV and leave. And at that point, I make a phone call that people can hear online. I, I usually play, play it during my uh, presentations. It's a call that I made to the U.S. Embassy. It's a frantic call for help. Eventually, I called the only person I trusted. You talk about corruption. I only trusted one person of the Mexican Federal Police, and that was the commander that led our uh, VETA group. And he was the one that was able to deploy a helicopter 40 minutes later to come and rescue us. And that's the call. And that's the call that I made. Uh, he, uh, I called to the embassy first, and the embassy, you know, the, the switchboard operator doesn't know what's going on. I'm yelling at him. I'm, an, I'm Victor Avila from ICE. I'm an ICE special agent. We've been shot on the highway. And they route that call to the regional security office. The diplomatic special agents answer the phone. I happen to know one of them is my friend. And, you know, they're like, where are you? What, what are you doing on Highway 57? Like, you're not even supposed to be out there, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, then another ICE agents jump on the phone. A lot of people start jumping on the phone. And I get on the phone with them. I then get on the phone with the Mexican Federal Police and eventually get on the phone with the pilot to give them directions because I know exactly where we're at on Highway 57. And this is a pilot for the Mexican? Mexican Federal Police. Okay. We're about four and a half hours uh, north of Mexico City in the middle of nowhere. And it took how long? 40 minutes, which is a long, long time um, to be there. And you're sweating it that they're going to come back again. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, um, you know, I'm shot. Uh, I'm a shot. Um, you know, I'm trying to take care of and control the bleeding. Um, yeah. I'm trying to control my leg. Because uh, uh, I'm thinking I'm bleeding out myself. And are you starting to lose consciousness? No, I never oh, lost consciousness. Okay. I was um, I was at a very very high alertness. Uh, that, as a matter of fact, when we got to the hospital, that's when the fear uh, set in for me. And I talk about this in the book because people ask me, How, "Were you afraid when you were getting shot?" No, I didn't have any. I didn't have any feelings. Uh, that my life didn't flash before my eyes. But when we were going to the hospital. I was petrified and that fear that set in, I don't wish on anyone because I thought they're going to kill me at the hospital because I've seen these cases. The cartels go and finish people off at hospitals. They even go to funerals and kill the family members at funerals. And I knew for certain these guys know that I survived. The Zetas don't leave any survivors and they're going to kill me at the hospital. That's why I refused any IV. I refused any medication because I didn't want to alter them. I thought they were going to kill me. 
I thought the hospital was in on it. I thought the doctors were in on it. I didn't tell them who we were. They didn't know that we were Americans. They assumed that we were Mexican federal police and I was okay with that. And I, and I didn't tell them anything. It was a, it was a very, very dramatic uh, entrance to the hospital. Jaime got sent to one trauma room. I got sent to another. Um, and this whole time I'm on the phone with the only federal police officer that I know and I'm begging him to send the reinforcements. Eventually they came in about an hour later, secured the hospital and these, you know, heavy duty SWAT guys, like the, the photo you have, they're walking to the room and uh, they said, Victor Avila, we're here on direct orders from the commander. You're safe now. And that's the first time I, I breathe a little sigh of relief, but still no Americans. The Americans don't show up about four hours later. Do they bring medical help that you can trust the Americans? Yes. Uh, at that point, they brought the U.S. Embassy doctor. And uh, once it was secure, then I, I, uh, I almost yelled at the, at the medical staff. My name is Victor Avila. I'm an American. I'm a U.S. Embassy employee. And, you know, and they were kind of like, oh, my goodness. You know, they didn't know. But they, there was a great treatment at the hospital great medical treatment. As a matter of fact, the trauma surgeon in Houston, because I got flown from there to Houston, knew the head uh, trauma surgeon at that hospital through a conference, which got kind of unique. But he says, you were actually in very good hands and uh, I was treated very well. So the Roman army had a procedure process where they would go to a village and if it didn't surrender, they killed every living thing, every animal, every child, and dismembered them and made a big spectacle of it. And then what they would find eventually, everybody would surrender. Is that part of what the cartel is doing by the, the, the violence and fear? Is that you're gonna, just going to give up or you're not going to oppose? Or is it something else? Is it, is it satanic in a sense? It could be satanic. Uh, I tell you, it's evil for sure. But they've done it. They have actually have done that. They have terrorized the country. And you talk about surrendering. We've already seen the, the federal government in Mexico do it and surrender. And I'll give you a quick case. The uh, ICE HSI had uh, located and uh, obtained a warrant for El Chapo's son. This was about a year and a half ago. Yes. And you probably know about this story. But tell our listeners I do. HSI was very excited. They got the Mexican military. They went into Sinaloa right into the heart of the Sinaloa headquarters, cartel headquarters, and they grabbed him. And they caught him. Well, the Sinaloa cartel didn't take that very well. And they sent hundreds and hundreds of Sinaloa cartel members in that city. And there was a huge, huge shootout. And they started threatening the family members and civilians of the, uh, not just civilians, but the family members of the military. They went to the barracks and sent a message to the Mexican uh, president saying, if you don't release them, we're going to start executing all these men, women, and children. And, uh, and, uh, you know, people, it, it's, it's a double-edged sword here because it's a war. And that would have been a, 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 the opportunity for Mexico to say enough is enough and we're going to war and you bring everybody and you bring the Marines and, and, and it's going to be bloodshed and a lot of, a lot of innocent lives are going to get lost. I understand that. But because he decided to kneel before the Sinaloa cartel and ask them to be released, they did release him. Now, you talk about having an upper hand. It's, it's not only been in Sinaloa with the Sinaloa cartel. It's been with Jalisco, the cartel Jalisco New Generation. It's been with the Gulf cartel. It's been with Los Zetas. They control Mexico. And this is the part that I want people to understand. No longer are the days of where the, the corrupt politicians instruct the cartels. No, it's the other way around. It's the cartels instructing the politicians. You might have some politicians with a lot of power and they're still, they're mm -hmm. still there and exist. Mm -hmm. But overall, the control and, and, and influence is by the cartels. So are there parallel governments? Absolutely. Absolutely. Without hands. It's, it, it, is, it is lawlessness. It is a failed state in Mexico. Now, people say, uh, can you go on vacation to Cancun and Cabo San Lucas? You'll be fine. Yes, because you got these pockets of areas that it's okay. But you can't drive throughout the, the country. If, you, if you're telling me you want to drive from Monterey somewhere, I'm the first one to tell you don't do it. They're, they're hijacking people. I have the videos to prove it. Hijacking people on the highway. American tourists, any kind of pe person with a vehicle. So how long does it stay okay in these pockets? Because, you know, here in Dallas, you hear the oil families, the wealth, they go to Cabo. They've all got uh, mansions in there, and they think they're immune from all of this. They're not immune from it. Um, the, uh, the violence is all around there, and 
And it's one of those things that it, it's very hard for me. People ask me all the time, is it safe to go down there? Will I go to Mexico City? Yes, I will go to Mexico City. I have gone to Mexico City. I wanted to go to Mexico City because I hadn't gone back after the shooting. And it was just for my well-being, you know, to go back where I used to live. I, we left our home and never went back. So I always tell people, if you left your house today, you're never going to go back to that house. Now you're going to go to a different country or a different state and you have to start from scratch. You need a, you need a toothbrush. And that's what happened to us. We left and never went back. We didn't see our furniture and our clothing for over a year. And so it was, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of shocking to, you have to, you know, your life is, is thrown upside down. But, you know, people ask me all the time, do, yes, you can go to Mexico City and be okay. Uh, yes, you could go to Cabo and be okay. I don't know about Cancun so much, but there's, there's these areas where even the cartels kind of leave it alone. Because tourism, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's hard to explain. But it, but it's still okay to do that. But the wealth is there, which is perfect yes. for kidnapped ransom, which they're really big into. Oh yeah, they have now taken uh, control of so much of the inner part of the country because mm -hmm. the the borders we know are, are theirs, but the inner part of the Zacatecas, Michoacan, um, um, Tijuana, even in some border down the further south of the peninsula, they have really may have a major impact. Now their their impact is on politicians and who's getting elected, they're putting their people there, who's going to work for them. And this is a, a huge, huge impact on our government of the United States and our people because the cartels are headquartered in Mexico, but they are present here. Where do you think they're bringing the human smugglers of drugs into the United States? And so we are impacted 100% by all of their actions in Mexico. People think, well, it, it's, it's happening down there. It doesn't happen here. No, the violence has spilled over. The, the drugs, obviously, the poison, the record numbers of fentanyl seizures are through the roof. I mean, there was a huge one here in Dallas uh, uh, about a month ago in the East Coast, huge hundreds of pounds of uh, fentanyl. And the pill mills that are produced in Mexico, mm -hmm. the counterfeit mm -hmm. pills, the methamphetamine, the super labs, and where are they bringing it? Into our communities. The, la the last stat that I saw in the last seven years we have had over 800,000 poisons. I don't call them overdoses. They're poisonings by the cartels. That's more than COVID. That's more than, than wars. And no one blinks an eye because of the deaths. Okay, we were just talking about how the cartels control or, or, or poisoning people with fentanyl. But I wanted to go back and pick up the shooting. Did Jaime, your partner, did he expire on the way to the hospital, pass away in the hospital? And what was the process? You How long did it take to you to recover? And then walk us through the trial. I was officially told by the doctor at the hospital he had uh, passed away at the hospital. When we got rescued and put into the helicopter, he was obviously unconscious, but I, I, I still believe that he had a pulse. And, um, uh, and they brought him in and, and then the doctor officially notified me. And there was a lot of issues with the governor of Mexico with an autopsy and to release the body. You got to keep in mind, all of a sudden, we're in a foreign country. And let me tell you, as a Hispanic of Mexican descent, I felt like such a foreigner. I, I, I'm an American, but I love Mexico. My parents came from there, but I felt like such a foreigner and such a, a very lonely being there. For all intents and purposes, I could have been in China. And that's how I felt mm -hmm. because there's no, absolutely no backup, the corruption and all that. But anyway, we, uh, we got out. Uh, my family was extracted in a very unique fashion. We were finally reunited in Texas. And then eventually they didn't want me nowhere near the U.S. border. So my re physical recovery was done in Washington, D.C. And I was out there for several months recovering from my legs and getting back to walking and, and the PTSD and all that. But then at some point you say to the superiors, you know, you screwed up. You really kind of sent us, sent us to a certain death. What's the reaction to the, to the, from the suits to all of this? Do they start closing ranks, cover up? What, what happens? Completely cover up. Uh, we were, uh, all this happened under the Obama administration. And we were, my family and I completely failed by, by the administration. You know, I never asked for any special circumstance, any special favors to be done of, of me. I just wanted to be taken care of as a, as an, a loyal federal employee that I was. And a good one at that. And I'm proud of the job that I did, but I didn't get that, that backup. I didn't get that, that sense of we're going to take care of you, Victor. And that didn't happen. As a matter of fact, walls were being put up 
people were being taken away from me and were told because later on, you know, everything comes out. People years later said, oh, yeah, they told me they sent out emails. Stay away from Victor. Don't talk to him because we did sue the government. We we filed a, a lawsuit. Um, it's very difficult to sue the government yes. because of the uh, immunity uh, issues. And we try to pierce to some of those issues, but it, it was unsuccessful. Why? Because the Obama administration wouldn't release the documents so we could present them to the court because President Obama exerted executive privilege on these documents, not just related to our shooting, but also related to Fast and Furious because two of the weapons recovered in our shooting are tied to Fast and Furious. And so all of that gets blocked. The judges, can you give us the documents? And we're like, we're in a catch-22 here, judge. The government won't give it to us, so we can't prove our case, and the case is dismissed. And quickly tell the listeners about briefly about Fast and Furious and how those weapons got out of the U.S. Operation Fast and Furious is probably the biggest debacle uh, uh, case that ever existed in the federal government, uh, mostly led by ATF, but also involved in there was FBI and DEA. And these are weapons that were allowed to walk. And, and, and I say walk, meaning allowed to go into Mexico with any furtherance of as to where the weapons were going to end up. And we're talking about thousands. You'll, you'll read, uh, you know, stories and hear this 2,000 weapons. There's a lot more than 2,000 weapons. And these weapons have ended up not just in Mexico. The Paris shooter is a uh, uh, the, the massacre that happened a couple of years ago. That's a Fast and Furious weapon. Uh, El Chapo had a 50 caliber weapon when he got arrested. It's a Fast and Furious weapon. Uh, many gun shop owners were affected uh, by the by the Fast and Furious in Arizona and Nevada. And we were, we've got two U.S. federal agents killed, Agent Brian Terry, in December of 2010. And then two months later, we get uh, shot. And so you, know, you have two U.S. federal agents directly killed by these weapons that are under the, um, the supervision of the federal government. Mm-hmm. And so uh, maybe is that, that because I survived and I'm going to expose that, I get... You know, I get treated like a pariah. Uh, all of a sudden, I get treated like I did something wrong to the with, to the government. But um, all I did was get shot and serve. Well, was it a case that it was a sense of embarrassment? The, the administration didn't really want to acknowledge how bad the situation was down there, that Americans' agents were being killed, and that it was a political foreign relations issue? Definitely all the above. Embarrassment corruption, um, exposure. On this, this side. On corruption. this side, oh, yes, on the, under the Obama administration. I mean, you have uh, uh, Attorney General Eric Holder, the first Attorney General in history to be held in contempt of Congress because he lied, because he was aware of the of the operation and they lied, they were not aware. They The operation in Fast and Furious was going to be a model, if you believe it or not, to be spread out throughout the United States. That's why these weapons that were used against us were found out of Texas not out of Arizona. And, and that's where the, the, the tie comes in. So which weapons, the weapons that killed Jaime, were they tied to Fast and Furious? Absolutely. absolutely. The, the AK-47s. Uh-huh. We have the ballistic reports. Yeah. Um, there was actually supposed to be three, but we never say three because I don't have the, uh, the mm-hmm. ballistics on the third weapon. Some of these people were extradited that committed the murders? All of them. All of them. Uh, one was presumed dead. There's eight shooters. One was presumed dead. So seven of them were caught. And they were caught by an ex- extraordinary cooperation by the government of Mexico and U.S. law enforcement. I'm talking about HSI, FBI, uh, U.S. Marshals going into Mexico and doing an extraordinary amount of good old-fashioned police work that nabbed these guys. I mean, I'm somewhat shocked, though, with the corruption, or was it just, just the case that the Mexicans said, hey, they're too hot to handle this? I think, I think it, it, you know, sometimes you, uh, you have to force their hand. And I mm-hmm. think at this point, Mexico yeah. had no... No choice but to assist us in that. What did you learn from their trial? And was uh, what things surprised you in the trial? Yes. One that was pleasantly surprising was that they did hear me, that I did say that, in fact, that they knew that we were Americans. Mm-hmm. But beyond that is how they testified to the level of the sophistication of these cartels. That's why uh, I, I tell people, when you think about these cartels, I want you to think of them as Amazon. How, you know, the money that, that Amazon has, yes. the structure, the, uh, the hierarchy, the logistics. the logistics, the intelligence, they're just the same. High level of intelligence, high level of sophistication, high level of networking. You, you cannot, I cannot stress that enough. And they testified to that, how, for example, they had to check out their weapons for that day. 
the cars that they drove, they have fleet cards, gas cards. I mean, this is, this is like a private corporation. This is the Zetas. And this is how highly sophisticated everything is in order. This is not a street gang. This is not a drug gang. And I don't even call them drug cartels in, anymore because that's not what they are anymore. They're terrorist organizations. And right now they're highly into the, uh, not just the drugs, but of course the human smuggling, the human trafficking. Victor Avila, thank you so much. Thank you. Since our interview, Victor Avila succeeded in plugging the loophole in federal law that let the convicted murderers of his partner go free. The new law named the Jaime Zapata and Victor Avila Federal Officers and Employees Protection Act makes it a federal crime when a federal officer or employee is murdered or attacked outside the U.S. Texas Senator John Cornyn introduced the legislation in the U.S. Congress and presented Avila with a copy of the law at a ceremony in Fort Worth, Texas. Avila has also decided to run for public office. He announced his candidacy for the Texas Land Commissioner and made border security his number one issue. We want to be your favorite true crime podcast, so please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness. Please tell your friends who love true crime that they can bypass secondhand tales and get their true crime fix here with authentic stories straight from the source. Tell them that True Crime Reporter is one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement victims and even convicted criminals. And sign up for my free newsletter on the homepage of TrueCrimeReporter.com. It's your gateway to a world of knowledge and awareness in the realm of true crime and your personal safety. Thanks for listening, and until we meet again, be prepared, don't get scared. This is Robert Riggs reporting.